You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Patti Smith. This program originally aired in 2015. Virginia Prescott. Today on Word of Mouth, it's Writers on a New England Stage with Patti Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Poet, musician, and photographer Patti Smith is often called the godmother of punk. She made her mark as one of the progenitors of the movement, which rejected the bloated arena rock of the late 1970s for a more raw, traditional sound. In 1978, she had one radio hit, Because the Night, written with Bruce Springsteen, and soon after, she stepped off stage, moving to Detroit to raise a family with her husband, Fred Sonic Smith, guitarist for the MC5. It was with the publication of Just Kids in 2010 that Patti Smith transformed from downtown cult figure to National Book Award-winning writer. Just Kids was a memoir of her long relationship with the provocative photographer Robert Maplethorpe, who died of AIDS in 1989. Five years later, Smith's husband Fred died suddenly of heart failure, followed by her brother Todd a month later. Her new memoir, M Train, is haunted by those losses, and it follows her inner life and mind, jumping from past to present, place to place, between dreams and reality, between the living and the dead. Patti Smith was met by a standing ovation and exuberant crowd at the music hall in Portsmouth when she stepped out to read from M Train. Uh, Thank you. I'm really glad to uh, to be here tonight. Um, it is true I've been quite under the weather, and uh, but I was determined to get here, and I have. I can tell you, I'm. <coughs> I you can't catch what I have because I'm at the happily toward the tail end of it. So uh, if I seem a little subdued, I have not mellowed. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> Uh, you know, just a bit bronchial, but I'm I'm my usual self, so don't give me any sh- <laughs> So I'm going to read uh, some of M Train. Uh, it's still new to me reading it out loud, um, but uh, anyway, I don't know. Cafe Eno was empty, but the cook was unscrewing the outlet plate above my seat. I took my book into the bathroom and read while he finished. When I emerged, the cook was gone, and a woman was ready to sit in my seat. Excuse me, this is my table. Did you reserve it? Well, no, but it's my table. Did you actually sit here? There's nothing on the table, and you have your coat on. I stood there mutely. If this were an episode of Midsummer Murders, she would surely be found strangled in a wild ravine behind an abandoned vicarage. I shrugged and sat at another table, hoping to wait her out. She spoke loudly, asking for eggs benedict and iced coffee with skim milk, neither offered on the menu. She'll leave, I thought, but she didn't. She plopped her oversized red lizard bag on my table and made numerous calls on her cell phone. There was no way to escape her odious conversation fixed on a tracking number for some missed FedEx package. I sat and stared at the heavy white coffee mug. If this were an episode of Luther, 
she would be found face up in the snow with the objects from her purse arranged around her. A bodily corona like Our Lady of Guadalupe. Such dark thoughts for the sake of a corner table. My inner Jiminy Cricket spoke up. Oh, all right, I said. May the world's small things fill her with delight. Good, good, spoke the cricket. And may she purchase a lottery ticket and possess the winning number. Unnecessary, but fine. And may she order a thousand such bags, each one more splendid than the last, delivered and dumped by FedEx. And may she be trapped by a storeroom's worth, without food, without water, or cell phone. I'm leaving, said my conscience. <laughs> Me too, I said, and I went back out into the street. I'm sorry, I'm really stuffed up. I can hear my voice sounds really weird, but it's okay, right? You don't care. Usually I read really elegantly and perfect, but There's um, um, some stories about my uh, late and wondrous husband, Fred Sonic Smith, in this book. This is a little tale of our life in Michigan. Fred loved boats. We spent a lot of time looking at old tugboats, houseboats, and shrimp trawlers. He especially liked old wooden boats. And on one of our excursions in Saginaw, Michigan, we found one for sale, a late 50s Chris Craft Constellation, not guaranteed to be seaworthy. We bought it quite cheaply, and we hauled it back home and parked it in our yard facing the canal that led to Lake St. Clair. I had no interest in boating, but I worked side by side with Fred, stripping the hull, scouring the cabin, waxing and polishing the wood, and sewing small curtains for the windows. Summer nights with my thermos of black coffee and a six-pack of Budweiser for Fred, we'd sit in the cabin and listen to Tiger's games. I knew very little about sports, but Fred's devotion to his Detroit team obliged me to know the basic rules, our team members, and our rivals. Fred had been scouted as a young man for a shortstop position on the Tigers' farm team. He had a great arm, but he chose to use it as a guitarist, yet his love of the sport never diminished. It turned out that our wooden boat had a broken axle, and we didn't have the resources to have it repaired. We were advised to scrap it, but we didn't. To the amusement of all our boater neighbors, we decided to keep her right where she was, in the better part of our yard. In the winter, we covered her with a heavy tarp, and with baseball season, <laughs> Oh, this is why my alarm didn't wake me up this morning, because... <laughs> I had it on, I'll just turn this off. I'm becoming like one of those people, right? Like, 
check this out. My daughter bought me this. I have a Hunger Games uh, case. It's awesome. Guaranteed nobody wants to steal it because they, they wouldn't be caught dead with a Hunger Games case. <laughs> I actually went to a Hunger Games premiere and I had that phone and the people who produced Hunger Games wouldn't have been caught dead with it. They... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I digress. It, it must be my illness. <laughs> In the winter, we covered our boat with a heavy tarp, and when baseball season opened again, we removed it and listened to Tiger games on a shortwave radio. If the game was delayed, we would sit and listen to cassettes on a boombox. Nothing with words, usually something of Coltrane's, like Olay or Live at Birdland. On the rare occasion of a rainout, we would switch over to Beethoven, whom Fred particularly admired. First a piano sonata, and then with the rain steadily falling, we'd listen to Beethoven's pastoral symphony, following the great composer on an epic walk into the countryside, listening to the songs of the birds in the Vienna woods. Toward the end of the baseball season, Fred surprised me with the official orange and blue Detroit Tigers jacket. It was early fall, a bit chilly. Fred fell asleep on the couch, and I slipped on the jacket and went out into the yard. I picked up a pair that had fallen from our tree wiped it off my sleeve, and sat on a wooden lawn chair in the moonlight. Zipping up my new jacket, I felt the satisfaction of a young athlete receiving his varsity letter. Taking a bite of the pear, I imagined being a young pitcher, coming out of nowhere, delivering the Chicago Cubs from their long championship drought by winning 32 games in a row. One game more than Denny McLean. One Indian summer afternoon, the sky turned a distinct chartreuse. I opened our balcony window to get a closer look. I had never seen such a sky. Suddenly it went dark, and a massive thunderbolt filled our bedroom with a blinding light. For a moment, everything went completely silent followed by a deafening sound. The lightning had struck our immense weeping willow tree, and it had toppled. It was the oldest willow in St. Clair Shores, and its length stretched from the edge of the canal to clear across the street. As it fell, its massive weight crushed our criss-craft. Fred was standing at the screen door, and I at the window. We watched it happen at the same moment, electrically bound as one consciousness. You're listening to Patti Smith from Writers on a New England Stage, here remembering life with her husband, Fred, in a passage from her memoir, M Train. I'd like to read one more passage and, um, and say something. We seek to stay present even as the ghosts attempt to draw us away. Our father manning the loom of eternal return, our mother wandering toward paradise, releasing the thread. In my way of thinking, anything is possible. 
life is at the bottom of things and belief at the top, while the creative impulse dwelling in the center informs all. We imagine a house, a rectangle of hope, a room with a single bed with a pale coverlet, a few precious books, a stamp album. Walls papered in faded floral fall away and burst as a newborn meadow speckled with sun and a stream emptying into a greater stream where a small boat awaits with two glowing oars and one blue sail. When my children were young, I contrived such vessels. I set them to sail, though I didn't board them. I rarely left the perimeter of our home. I said my prayers in the night by the canal draped by ancient long-haired willows. The things I touched were living. My husband's fingers, a dandelion, a skinned knee. I didn't seek to frame these moments. They passed without souvenir. But now, I cross the sea with the sole aim to possess within a single image the straw hat of Robert Graves or the typewriter of Herman Hesse, the spectacles of Beckett, the sickbed of Keats. What I have lost and cannot find, I remember. What I cannot see, I attempt to call, working on a string of impulses, bordering illumination. I believe in movement. I believe in that light-hearted balloon, the world. I believe in midnight and the hour of noon. But what else do I believe in? Sometimes everything, sometimes nothing. It fluctuates like light flitting over a pond. I believe in life, which one day each of us shall lose. When we are young, we think we won't, that we are different. As a child, I thought I would never grow up, that I could will it so. And then I realized quite recently that I'd crossed some line, unconsciously cloaked in the truth of my chronology. How do we get so damn old, I say to my joints, my iron-colored hair. Now I am older than my love, my departed friends. Perhaps I will live so long that the New York Public Library will be obliged to hand over the walking stick of Virginia Woolf. I would cherish it for her and the stones in her pocket, but I would also keep on living, refusing to surrender my pen. Thank you. So, I'd like to do one more thing. Thanks. Um, I wanted to do this, and uh, now I'm not quite sure if I can do it very well because I'm sort of stuffed up, but I'll try. I just wanted to sing you a little song, a cappella. It's my stuffy version. <laughs> so this is a little song that I wrote for my daughter, Jessie, when her father passed away. Um, it's just a song that uh, seeks to find beauty in the time of strife. And it's called Wing. I was a wing 
in heaven blue and on the ocean soared over Spain and I was free I needed nobody it was beautiful it was beautiful I was a pawn couldn't make a move couldn't go nowhere no future at all yet I was free I needed nobody it was beautiful it was beautiful and if there's one thing could do for you you'd be a wing in heaven blue i was an image in another eye and i saw nothing no future at all yet i was free I needed nobody, it was beautiful, it was beautiful. And if there's one thing could do for you, you'd be a wing in heaven blue. And if there's one thing could do for you you'd be a wing in heaven blue thank you thank you everybody we'll be back for questions sort of a spain and I was free, needing nobody. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Patti Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and The Music Hall. The National Book Award-winning author, poet, photographer, and musician joined us to talk about her memoir, M-Train. It's a mental train, traveling through her memories of childhood and marriage and motherhood and the pleasures and losses that ride alongside life, luck, and time. M-Train opens up the mind of an artist deeply moved by the places that people create, as well as their works. She crosses the earth picking up objects and relics, the slippers of Pope Benedict XV, the calling card of the poet Arthur Rimbaud, a page from Jim Morrison's last journal. In her work, they become talismans and symbols. Patti Smith joined me on stage at the Music Hall for an interview, including questions from the live audience and those submitted on social media. I asked her about those objects and what they communicate to her. The things that we have, you know, are precious 
at different times of, for different reasons. I do have a manuscript a poem of Jim Morrison's that Michael Stipe gave me for my birthday, and I treasure it not only because it's Jim Morrison's handwriting, but because Michael gave it to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have a little letter that Emily Dickinson wrote in her own hand, but I also have letters my mother wrote in her own hand, and they're just as precious. You know, I, it's, um, what's precious to each person is completely subjective. Sometimes we have things that, you know, are, you know, may be worth a lot of money or something, but other things, you know, could be priceless. My son made me a necklace of macaroni on a string. And, you know, I, if they gave me the Hope Diamond, I wouldn't give up my macaroni necklace. <laughs> Here's a question from the audience. Can you visualize a memory in your mind that you wish you had a photograph of? Oh, yeah, about a million. But I guess at this moment, I had a dog when I was a girl. It was the only dog I ever had. Her name was Bambi. And I loved this dog so much. And uh, when I was 11 or 12, she was hit by a, a fire truck. And I buried her. And I still think of her almost every day. I hardly see a dog that I don't think of Bambi. And that was like, well, 50, 50, I don't know how many years, over a century, half a century ago. But um, I, I have no pictures of her. You know, we didn't have a camera. Yeah, I wish I, I would have liked to have had a photograph of Bambi. In the book, you, we, we hitch a ride on this M train, I guess, as you're going from... Did you pay for your ticket? I did pay for my <laughs> ticket. I did not turn style hop from the M train. Going place to place, it's sort of like a, a modern pilgrim, you know, gathering pictures or photographing objects and visiting graves and collecting these kind of talismans. How do you decide where to go to next? Well, sometimes it's serendipitous. Is that a word? <laughs> it's another one of them big words, right? <laughs> but uh, often, it's, it, a lot of times, it's because I'm studying someone when I was reading a lot of, uh, I had my year of Roberto Bolaño, I read them all year, and then I decided uh, I wanted to go to Blanes, uh, where he lived at the end of his life and, uh, and worked. And I was fortunate to meet his family and allowed to photograph some of his things. And I couldn't, nothing spoke to me of him um, in the pictures and then I asked if there was anything else, and they said, well, his chair is uh, in the closet. And it was just a regular old chair, and um, he found it, and he had it in some furnished apartment, and then always sat on it when he wrote. And then he left that apartment, and he took the chair with him, and then he took the chair from place to place. And that the chairs spoke to me. It sort of resonated him. It sort of, it seemed to... In any event, I took a picture of the chair, which is in the book. Mm. But um, even when I'm torn with the band, sometimes I'll say to my, I have an English uh, agent, and he's really great, because I can call him up and say, I'm, I'm doing something on Swinburne. I want to see Yates's grave or something. And he'll find me jobs so I can stop in that town. 
<laughs> and why he's so great, I've been working for him with him a long time. He'll say, well, P Patty, uh, I have two possible jobs. One, you can see Swinburne's grave, but for 5,000 pounds more, you could go here and not see anything in particular. And I said, so I say, give me the grave, you know. <laughs> but, but he's cool that way because, you know, that's, uh, he, he helps me design my tours sometimes. Yeah, that's how I do it. Here's a question from the audience. Can you visualize a memory in I was reading about your growing up and learned that you had been class clown at the Deptford Township, New Jersey High School. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, I was, I was, yeah, I was voted class clown, but on the other side, I was also Spartan of the Year, which is one of my proudest accomplishments. <laughs> I don't know why I got it, because usually the person that gets it is like the person like valedictorian type. And to this day, I don't know why they gave, gave it to me, but, but I cherish that in my, through all, all my life when in times of strife or when things weren't going good, I always remember when I was 16, I was Spartan of the Year. <laughs> was there, uh, art, uh, besides Spartan of the Year, um, was there a moment of realization for you that you weren't going to follow a traditional path, the path of your parents, path that was laid out in front of yeah, you? Yeah, when I was a toddler. Really? <laughs> that soon? No, I knew immediately yeah. that something was up. <laughs> that, that didn't mean that I didn't love my parents. I just knew that, you know, I had something else in mind. It, 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 and I knew I wanted to write when I was... When I read Little Women quite young, I wanted to be like Joe March and write. And I wanted to, when I saw Picasso at 12, I wanted to paint. And I always knew what I wanted to do. And I always knew that I was going to have a rough, that it was possible I'd have a rough path. But I, 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 that didn't bother me. It seems like your parents were explorers on some level too, though. Your, your dad seemed very in curious about the world. And well, my parents were voracious readers. They were both intelligent. They um, struggled quite a bit financially. My father was, um, although he was, you know, of such, had such a beautiful mind, he worked in a factory. My mother was a waitress. But they had very um, complex, compassionate, and inquiring minds. And so I had a very interesting upbringing, really interesting people. But uh, they didn't, um, my father's explorations were more cerebral. He wasn't a traveler. And my mother's were dreamlike because they, they couldn't travel. They didn't have any money to travel. And uh, they worked really hard to take care of us four kids. So, uh, but they, they were awesome. Yeah. We have a number of questions here about sort of how you became who you became, and, and I remember in Just Kids, you, 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 you seemed like you were kind of shy on some level, but then when you were seeing Jim Morrison, I'm, I'm sure a lot of teenage girls in the audience would think, wow, I want to get with him, and you were like, I could do that. I mean, where did that come from, this sort of gut, this courage, this sense? Genetic. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Actually, uh, it's just, it's like the, I'm not that good socially, 
truthfully. And uh, I mean, it's not like so much being shy. I just don't really know what to say, and I'm, I don't have a lot of uh, social tolerance. But I like communicating with people. It's really natural for me to come on a, on a stage and talk to people and, you know, feel one with them. Real unnatural for me to sit next to somebody at a d dinner party and try to figure out what to say. Mm. It's just, that's just the way I am. I don't know. I don't know why. I just know I saw the doors, looked at Jim Morrison, and I just knew that I could do that. Not like Jim, I just... It sounds really conceited, but it's just, and I didn't even do it. I mean, I was working in a bookstore. I was living with Robert working in a bookstore, and it was a weird thing in my brain. I kept thinking, it seemed familiar to me. I understood him. I could see where he was self-conscious. I comprehended his moves. I, it's hard to talk about because it's uh, some, it's, I think it was instinctive. Because at that time, I had no desire to have a rock and roll band or anything. I just wanted to write or, and paint. So uh, I can't explain it. It's just something that was in me. Hmm. You're listening to my conversation with Patti Smith, a musician, poet, photographer, and National Book Award winning writer recorded live for Writers on a New England Stage. Well, you love being in cafes, and somebody here wanted to know if you'd found any Portsmouth cafes to write in. Well, I wasn't here uh, long enough to do that, but, um, but it was a, certainly a, a place I'd like to come again and explore. I like it around here, it was, and I like the architecture and the buildings, and, you know, it's just a... There, it, there's a... It's a kind of a... I kept thinking, like... Imagine an H.P. Lovecraft roaming around here. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't answer your question, but I, it's I can't okay. lie. Well, reading uh, Just Kids especially, and, and reminded of this somewhat more in um, M Train, there is a kind of sadness about New York City, what it's become. Uh, we have a question here that, where do you go to be inspired when there's a Starbucks on every corner in New York City? Well, there isn't a Starbucks on every corner, but um, there's Starbucks all over the f***ing world, you know? <laughs> but um, we're building so fast in our country and just destroying so much of our landmarks, our landmark buildings, our history. We're such a young country, and we, you know, we're not like Italy where they have a million, uh, you know, a, a million uh, old buildings or, or statues or monuments to spare. We're, we have so little and we just are systematically, um, we're destroying them, building up more and more of these uh, glass and steel uh, monoliths that, you know, mean, they, they don't say anything. They don't have a vibe. You can't open the windows. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh. But New York City is still, it's a great city. But Cities are really... inherently great. It's a great city. It's just, you know, I, I just feel like we, we've, we're, it's like everyone's losing their mind. I was just in London, and it's like they're losing their f***ing mind. They're just like, just, just leveling whole areas and building more and more of these things, and it's like, 
why would you 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 go to these places to get a sense of like where we came from some some history get a sense of our ancestors walking these streets you know you go to see where william blake was born and then there's a big like ugly department store and then it has a little thing william blake was born at this site you know it's just like a sale on uh, underwear or something but but it's really expensive also to live in New York City now. Oh, it's and really expensive, yeah. But, but you were able to live cheaply at the Chelsea Hotel and create and hang around with um, this amazing coterie of creative people, the Sam Shepherds and the It's Robert not my Mead. fault. I just like... No, it's not, but I'm just wondering <laughs> if you were 18 or 20 now, where would, where would the young Patti Smith go? Where would you seek out your future? If I was 20 now, I'd probably, I'd probably go to... Philadelphia. No, actually, I went to Philadelphia then, but I couldn't get a job. I only wound up in New York City because I couldn't get a job in Philadelphia because uh, I'm a Jersey girl. You don't just go from New Jersey to New York. You stop at Philadelphia. <laughs> I have no idea where I'd go. Maybe I would go to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. When you I'm, I have enough trouble figuring out where the 69-year-old Patti Smith is going to be, <laughs> let alone the eight, old, a new 18-year-old version of myself. Well, we have a lot of which questions. Which sounds horrifying. <laughs> we have a lot of questions here about the, the 69, or the 68, con currently, uh, Patti Smith. You know, you're older now than, than Fred and Robert and your brother Todd ever got to be, and... Do you have any models for aging artists, for what, for what life is like for a creative person at your age? Well, I knew William Burroughs. I mean, he lived a long life. He lived till he was about 87. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a matter of aging artists. I think it's a matter of aging. You know, I think it's, just, it's not like artists have this special thing. You know, it's uh, all, as a human being, uh, if you want to live a long time, unless you're really unlucky because of illnesses or or fate, you know, you have to take care of yourself. And as you get older, you find, you know, part of the equation is, is uh, being really attentive, is a little extra maintenance, you know, is just, you know, adjusting your diet, adjusting, you know, your habits, and staying optimistic. It's really important to stay enthusiastic and optimistic. I think it's one of the keys to a long life is to really maintain your language of enthusiasm. If you, if, if you love being alive, then uh, you'll find ways to, uh, to live as long as you can. What brings joy to you now that was not available to you years ago? My kids. Yeah. I, they, I love them. I, they're just, uh, they're awesome. I, I never imagined I'd have kids. I wasn't really um, maternal type as when I, I mean, I helped raise my siblings. I had a sense of responsibility, but I always just thought I'd be an artist, a suffering artist, I'd die young. You know, I had it all planned, you know, but. <laughs> But uh, I, they, uh, they're really great. But a lot of things give me joy, you know. 
I, I, I get happy really easily. You know, it could be somebody makes me a nice cup of coffee or, or um, you know, I, I write something that I'm happy with or a new book comes out or, you know, Spectre. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> a couple of people asked about books you've read recently that inspired you, or music. When was the last great record you heard? Mm. Well, I tend to listen to the same stuff all the time. I'm like, I like, uh, I like listening to opera. I like listening to... Um, uh, Wagner, I like Tristan and Isolde, I like Parsifal. Lately, I've been listening to the soundtrack of this movie, Ron, this Kurosawa movie. Mm-hmm. I like listening to music I can work to, but I'm, I'm not much of a, like a record buyer mm-hmm. uh, these days. I don't buy that many. I, I got the records I like, and, and sometimes I'll hear a song that I like, like when Rihanna did that song, Stay, mm-hmm. I loved that song. I watched that video, Rihanna in a bathtub. She was awesome. um, um, And uh, Rolling in the Deep, that was a good song. But, you know, I, 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 I like opera. That's the punk rock icon Patti Smith on her love of opera and Rihanna. When we come back, the gravitational pull of TV detective shows, finding models for aging, and what future pilgrims would find for relics in her laundry pile. There's more Patti Smith coming up on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Not really sure how to feel about it, something in the way you I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're back with Patti Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR in the Music Hall. Forty years after her debut record, Horses, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee is a National Book Award winner, celebrated photographer, and poet. Her new memoir, M Train, follows her on her quixotic world travels and into the landscape of her mind. It's also a book about writing, fueled by discipline and endless cups of black coffee, and sometimes not writing when those lifelong habits to create get knocked off course, sometimes by what she calls a lingering malaise, and sometimes getting sucked into binge-watching detective shows on TV. In the book, she writes about yesterday's poets being today's detectives. Well, I asked Patti Smith about the draw of these shows during our conversation on stage at the Music Hall. I don't like uh, suspense or a lot of crime. Like, I would be happier if I knew the end first because I I don't like a lot of suspense. And uh, I can't stand like that. You know that show, Criminal Minds? I can't watch that. (laughs) It's so scary. I can't watch it. And... uh, Joe Nesbo, did you ever read that mm-hmm. guy? I read Blood on, um, uh, 
what is it? The one with the snowman? I don't know, the bloody snowman. Or, yeah, yeah. I read one, and then I tried to read another. They sent me one, uh, his publisher, to blurb, and it was so f***ing scary. I was like, <laughs> I, I couldn't... I couldn't stand it, so I just wrote them, and my blur. I just wrote, and I said, um, "This book is too stressful to finish." <laughs> I know. But, but what I really like is the mind of the detectives. You know, when I was a kid, I loved Sherlock Holmes. I love how they, you know, unravel these, you know these puzzles. I love to see how their mind goes. I love their lifestyle. I love how, you know, because I live a lot like them. I loved Lyndon and Holder. I loved how they would sit in a car for hours with coffee and it would go cold and they're like, you know, in total obsessive agony sitting in this car. It's like, what a great lifestyle. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just relate to them. I, Will you ever write a detective novel or maybe for a detective show script? I've been working on a, on a detective story for a few years. Ah. And um, it's short on crime, but long on detective. <laughs> Another In fact, I'm going to blurb it myself. <laughs> One of the things that you wrote in the book was that Fred used to say that not all dreams need to be realized. Are, are, you've done so much. Are there dreams of yours that were not? Hundreds. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, just all kinds of things. I've got, you know, tons of unfinished books and stories, and it's impossible to realize everything, because, and everything doesn't have to be realized. You know, it's uh, part of, you know, the joy is just the process to see where your mind can go. And... Uh, you know, our, our, li our life a lot, was a lot like the Arabian Nights. You know, we told each other story upon story that no one will ever hear that dissipated in the air, but they consumed us in that moment. And other things one completes and finishes and gives to the people. You know, I just think that, you know, we, we're so consumer-oriented. But I think about my ancestors, um, back of some generations, a lot of my ancestors were musicians, mm -hmm. piano players, they played harp, banjo, um, uh, mandolin, all kinds of instruments, but not professionally. And they were very uh, adept. They were singers, but they did it to entertain one another, wrote little songs to entertain. Not, not everything has to be done to be consumed. Some things are just done on an intimate basis or just really to perhaps uh, entertain oneself. I'm my biggest entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very intimate book. I mean, we learn a lot about you. We learn that you spend a lot of time alone. It seems that way anyway. Is this essential to your process of creating? No, not necessarily. It's just how my life went, you know. Mm. If, you know when, when you're married, you're with your husband a lot you know, at least I was all the time. And when you have little kids, then your kids are around. My husband is gone, my children have grown, and I find myself moseying around a lot by myself. And it's also my age. You know, when you get like 68, it's not like guys are banging the door down to <laughs> go out with you. <laughs> so, 
but I'm happy. You know, I mean, you know, I've had lonely periods in my life, but I'm pretty happy at this point in my life. You know, I, I'm comfortable with myself. Well, we have a lot of questions about that. You know, how you go on after people that you love so much have passed away. That's what we do. That's mm -hmm. what people do. Everyone, I'm not unique. Everyone, uh, um, everyone experiences loss. I mean, my, my daughter um, experienced the loss of her father when she was six years old. You know, it's like we experience loss and we have to you know, we're each given a life, and we have to decide what we're going to do with it. And there's no guarantee that it's always going to be an easy or joyful life. But, um, you know, and also when we, when we lose people, we don't lose them entirely. Yes, we lose the pleasure of having them physically, but everything that we know about them is within ourselves. And if we keep our channel open, we'll hear from them. You know, I still get scolded by my mother to this day. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I just think I'm glad to be alive, that's all. I'm glad to be alive. I'm willing to accept the whole package, which, you know, uh, includes sorrow, you know, illness, loss, you know, failure, and a lot of joy and magic, you know, you have, to, you have to embrace the whole package. So if future artists or seekers or pilgrims come looking for the objects that represent Patti Smith, what, what do you think they would be? Well, I mean, there's, there's many, but I would say the, the most humble ones would be my children's, you know, my, my children's baby teeth, my wedding ring, my copy of Little Lame Prince and Dog of Flanders, you know, I, my husband's, uh, you know, my husband's lock of hair and uh, the necklace Robert gave me. I have, you know, all of these uh, objects, none of them extremely valuable, but absolutely precious and all speak of other people, but also resonate myself. You know, I don't know. I've worn this T-shirt so much, this Darn T-shirt. Maybe it's just this, this, this Darn Electric Lady T-shirt. <laughs> In fact, I was, uh, sorry, because it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not. But uh, I did this, I had to do this interview for this, for Amtrak magazine, you know, did you ever see? So, uh, all right, it's M-Train. I'm on the cover of Amtrak magazine with M-Train. I actually accepted that because I don't like doing cover stories because I hate to get my picture taken for the cover of magazines because I don't want to see myself on a cover. I want to see, like, you know, Michael Pitt or somebody. But uh, anyway, I agreed to do it, and I was... The, the magazine came out and I didn't realize it and I was going to Philadelphia and I was sitting on the train and the, the guy puts the magazines on the table and I looked at it and I realized I was wearing the exact same outfit. <laughs> which I'm wearing now. 
So maybe if they're looking for like the essence of my objects, they should just take my pile of my dirty laundry. And... <laughs> That'll sum it up for me. Well, Patty Smith, before we say goodnight, I want to thank some of the people who helped make this evening possible. Writers on New England Stage, Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. NHPR's broadcast producer, Maureen McMurray. New Hampshire Public Radio digital producer, Sarah Plord. Music Hall production manager, Jana Morris. Music Hall live sound and recording engineer, Ian Martin. Musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Thank you so much to them. And our broadcast sponsor, Heinemann Publishing, and as seen on the cover of Amtrak Magazine, please join me in thanking Patti Smith. Thank you, everybody. I had a great time. Patti Smith, author of the National Book Award winner, Just Kids, and now M-Train, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on the New England Stage. Writers on a New England Stage is a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books. You can see photos from the evening thanks to Here and There Photography at wordofmouthradio.org. And while you're there, check out our new podcast, The 10-Minute Writer's Workshop. We asked Patti Smith and Stacey Schiff and Salman Rushdie to share some of their habits and advice for writers. It's a whole lot of experience and good stuff in a very quick listen. And you can find it at wordofmouthradio.org. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Yeah.